In March 2015, former Supreme Court Judge Marie Deschamps produced a major report on sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces. That report described, quote, a hostile sexualized environment. It included everything from swearing and sexual innuendo to dubious relationships between junior female staff and higher-ranked men. It also included rape. In response, the Canadian Forces launched Operation Honor to combat sexual misconduct and assaults in the military. It created a system to provide support to victims of such misbehavior. It's been more than four years since Deschamps released her report. Has anything changed? We'll have that discussion today. I'm Dave Puglesi. This is Defence Watch. Our guests today are Julie Lalonde, a women's advocate who has direct experience in addressing this issue with members of the military, and retired Colonel Michelle Drapeau, a lawyer who represents victims of sexual assault in the Canadian Forces. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So it's been uh, four years now since, uh, you know, Op Honor, Operation Honor came out, the Deschamps report came out, uh, and the military has been trying to deal with this uh, sexual misconduct uh, crisis, I, I think some people would would call it. Uh, Julie, how do you how do you think that uh, the Canadian Forces has done so far? I think they've done better in the last half of Operation Honor, but it was a rough start when you look at the comments that General Lawson was making at that time around the idea that sexual violence is biologically wired. Um, you know, the the refuting of the Deschamps report, even though it was incredibly credible uh, and her methodology was sound. So I think they are making a bit more progress under uh, General Vance, but it's been slow going. And I think that's very telling that there's still a lot of resistance to having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Michelle, what, what's, your, what's your analysis of that? I think it's been a very rough start. At the very beginning, they didn't accept any of the 10 recommendations by Madame Deschamps. Mm-hmm. And it was only after the then minister in the House of Commons uh, put pressure and accepted, in fact, that they would be, in principle, be accepted. A key recommendation, Madame Deschamps, the most critical one was that there be an external center be set up mm-hmm. so that victims would have a safe place to go and trusted in uh, in having them provide them with assistance and support and advice and so on that has yet to take place d and d refuse to um to, uh, to to trust anybody but themselves right. to be handling victims, item number one. Item number two, there has not been an oversight regime put into it. So whatever D&D does um, is self-serving in a sense that what they do, they tell us what they want to tell us. And to keep in mind that over the course of the past 40 years, there's been a, a significant report by the Auditor General there's been a more significant report done by Statistic Canada that shows a problem is still there mm-hmm. in spades. So it hasn't gone away with it. Mm-hmm. What I take from all of that after 40 years is the primary objective of the Chief of Defence Staff with Operation Honour is to prevent embarrassment to the, to, to the Canadian forces because they can sustain the criticism that comes with it. Mm-hmm. What it ought to be, principle number one should be what do we do to protect and to defend victims of sexual crimes? And that is not taking place. Mm-hmm. Victims of sexual crimes that are prosecuted before immediate tribunals are excluded from the Bill of Rights for victims. They have no rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, Julie, do you think that victims can be helped by... So this uh, sexual misconduct center is 
is within the Department of National Defense. They report to the deputy minister. I mean, so as Michelle has pointed out, it isn't independent. I mean, do you think that a victim going there is going to, you know, feel comfortable or, or you know, should that be taking place, right? Or should it be totally separate from the military? I think it needs to be totally separate from the military. I don't want to presume that there isn't a single victim that is not comfortable accessing that space. I mean, people have been accessing that center. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think a lot of it is beggars can't be choosers and that it's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think we're seeing what's happening on the military, as Michelle was saying, is that there's this idea that they are special and different. But the same conversation is happening on campuses, where if I have to report to someone who reports to the president, I'm not necessarily going to feel comfortable speaking honestly about what I'm going through if I'm being assaulted by a professor, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So the military is acting like they have some you know, special circumstances. That's why we have to keep it internal. But everywhere I work, I hear the same arguments for why they can't have external pressure, external accountability, and external support. And what we know to be true is survivors are incredibly distrusting of system for good reason. And so until you bring an outside party that responds to nobody and is accountable to nobody but survivors, you're, you're never going to see proper rates of reporting. Mm-hmm. And number of victims don't report to crime to this day. Uh, if, if they do, they just want to have a distance between their would-be aggressor and themselves. But can they and are they got the trust and confidence in the military police and the military justice system? The Auditor General reports that they don't. And the Statistic Canada also showed that they don't. They don't have that fate that they should have in, in the independence of the investigative body and the, the disciplinary process that the end use. Mm-hmm. Not the case in the civilian regime. Mm-hmm. If you are a victim of a crime, then you call 911 and you have a, a trained, experienced, independent police officer that comes to your to wherever you are and takes a statement. And if charges are laid, they're, they're laid by people who are independent from your employer. In this case, it's your employer who decides whether to lay charges and to prosecute you. And if you are into a court-martial, it's done on a military base, military judge, military lawyers, military witnesses, and military accused. Mm-hmm. So it's it's bodily. And if you are yourself a military victim and you want to pursue your career, very difficult to do both, uh, to be... Uh, to be putting D and D on trial, sort of, sort of a way, yeah. and at the same time expect to have your career going uninhibited by this, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. I mean, one of the interesting things is uh, the defense minister, General Vance, senior officers will continue to say, we put victims first. And I used access to information to take a look at some of the significant incident reports when a sexual uh, assault or harassment or misconduct takes place. And the reports are, you know, uh, the basics of what happened. And then there's this line, media interest nil, or media hasn't found out about this. There's not a single line about the victim has been taken care of, or, you know, we're dealing with with the victim, um, or we've provided these services. Uh, I mean, Julie, is this, a, a, um, is this kind of a all about embarrassment? Is all about protecting an institution? Absolutely. So again, to speak to Michelle's point around that idea of are we concerned about incidents? Are we concerned about trauma within the Canadian Armed Forces? Are we concerned about reputation and perception? Mm -hmm. And again, I see the same thing happening on campuses where for years they've been hiding and burying levels of of violence on campus. And until in Ontario, for example, until there was legislation saying you had to actually report how many sexual assaults happen on your campus, campuses were deterred from reporting because if I was the only one who reported, I looked worse than other campuses and 
And again, the obsession is with perception. Mm -hmm. And the same thing applies in the military. We want to recruit women. We have very, very low rates of women within Mm -hmm. the Canadian Armed Forces. And the ceiling that they're aiming for is like 20%, which is embarrassing. I mean, think of any other sector in which they would be proud to say 20% of our staff are women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I mean, they have low rates of recruiting of women and they are aware. I mean, they're not stupid. They're aware that if we talk so much about sexual violence in the military, if we talk about how one in 10 members will experience sexual violence, not really going to entice women to join us. And what we're concerned about it more is getting women to join us. And so I think those two things are always going to be in conflict um, when, you know, when you don't look at it from a holistic standpoint about actually if you solve this problem, yeah. you will entice women to join. That's how that works. But the issue as well is this problem has been around, well, I mean, it's always been around, but I remember in the 1990s, McLean's magazine came mm-hmm. out with a, its first to, big to issue about coverage. this. And then in 2000, I believe it came out yeah. and, and then it kind of went away. And then in 2015, they came out again. Yeah, Noémie Mercier did incredible work around it. Yeah. Exactly. And and so it's kind of like, what's going on? I mean... Uh, but they've uh, again, as now, and there were three uh, cover uh, stories by McLean's. And, of course, there was one a few years ago with Stephanie Raymond. Mm-hmm. Uh, your your uh, client. My client. Mm-hmm. And in every instance, I point the finger, and I continue pointing the finger, an absence of parliamentary oversight. Mm-hmm. There was one committee meeting where General Lawson appeared. Since then... It hasn't been. And if Parliament really was serious about it, A, they would decide whether or not the military ought to have jurisdiction to prosecute these crimes. I don't think they should. And that issue is before the Supreme Court at the moment. Second, they need to be oversight. They need to be somebody where a victims of a sexual crime, female in particular, in the forces, somebody they can go to. That person should be an inspector general, for instance. Somebody who's a civilian of high statute and the individual reports to parliament. They do it in so many other things, whether it's the budget or whether it's a procurement and so on. When it comes to the safety of people and particularly female that we need to have in the forces and they have the right to serve Mm -hmm. and to serve with safety and dignity and so on, we are parliamentarians. Mm. They've contracted it out to the CDS. And the CDS have come up with this the glorious chief de- name. The chief of defense staff. Up mm-hmm. honor. Yeah, up honor. Well, whose honors are we talking about here? Are we talking about the honor of the clan, of the forces, or the honor of the victims or potential victims? If it is the victims, they're doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. If it is the establishment, they're doing a pretty good job. Uh, the, the, the image of the forces has, in, has been enhanced over the years because of self-producing reports and, me, and reports of the media as to what they are doing. But I want to hear from an independent oversight body to tell me how good are the D&D, in fact, fixing the problem, mm. and how are victims responding to it? Mm-hmm. I mean, Operation Honor, um, when Vance came out with that, Chief of Defense Staff Vance uh, came out with that, um, there were soldiers that were that, that kind of had taken that term and called it Hop Honor, right? Uh, again, a sexually aggressive... I mean, is this an indication that, that uh, Julie, is this an indication that there's people still that aren't taking this seriously? Yeah, I mean, the deeply necessary but uncomfortable conversation is that a militarized culture is conducive to sexual violence. I mean, you're training people to conquer other nations. You're tra- like, I mean, we have to have this really uncomfortable conversation around how masculinity and is tied to militarization. The idea that a uniform, you know, that we all have to look the same. The, mili- the uniform is incredibly masculine. Like, you're literally mm-hmm. telling women to erase all signs of femininity when you join the military. There's really a sense that you are on borrowed time, that you should be grateful as a woman 
to be in the military because we're letting you be here. But if you step over the line, if you complain, if you you know push back, we will remind you of your place. The same thing goes for folks of color. Mm. I mean, we're talking a lot about sexual violence, but the military is incredibly white incredibly white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, there's issues of racism and sexism, but all of that is sort of imbued in the very nature of the Canadian Armed Forces. And I think they're in the middle of of this sort of crisis. And, and in my experience, I mean, the reason why I talk about this issue is because I was invited by the Royal Military College to train cadets on sexual violence prevention. And, that and was, I was sexually that was harassed. In, and that, that was in 2015? 14, 14. 14, yeah. And so I think the reason why the backlash to me coming forward was so severe was because I was seen as attacking the last place in Canada where men can be men. Mm -hmm. And And I think unless we talk about that, we're not going to actually address the root of the problem, which is why the word operation, the very name of the mission to eradicate sexual violence was turned into a slur. And Julie, when you walked in, so this is the Royal Military College in Kingston. You're giving a presentation on on, uh, on, on sexual misconduct. Yeah, it was around sexual violence and in particular bystander intervention. Right. And so you're getting catcalls, you're getting uh, jokes, people are yelling at you. Uh, You know, I I, I did one of the original stories around that and I reviewed those stories. And the one thing that struck me just from, you know, that, like, where is the discipline Mm -hmm. that these are the leaders of the future, the the elite, so to speak, Um, you know, where was the discipline? Like, what happened? Yeah. And the fact that, you know, the first year, the, the so I trained every single cadet at that school. I did first, second, third, and fourth year. I did them in order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third years were the worst. And I think that's an important thing for us to talk about is the perception was it was first years, they're young, you know, like mm-hmm. that they're full of adrenaline and they're just kind of wild. The third years were the worst group, which means you've been in that institution for three years. What have we taught you that you think this is appropriate? Mm-hmm. When I came forward, the, the backlash that I received from RMC cadets and as well as their girlfriends, mm-hmm. <laughs> the vast majority were from second and third years. So again, this is not somebody who's just off the street and we got to kind of get you into shape. These are people who have been indoctrinated in that institution for three years. And you're talking, when you say backlash, you're talking emailed threats and that type yeah, of thing. Yeah, I mean, right? I couldn't speak in public without a police presence for over a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were organizing online to come after me. I got phone calls. I got emails. I got so my social media was attacked. I mean, I was investigated by RMC for five months because the cadets argued that I went in there aggressive. And then by the end, they found, they discovered that, no, in fact, you were harassed. I received an apology. Um, But, you know, none of that was discussed. The idea was I alleged that I was harassed. um, And I think we all know that the Department of National Defense does Mm -hmm. not give you a written apology Mm -hmm. unless they have reason to. (laughs) Right. Uh, Right. But again, that backlash is telling, right? I'm a civilian. I'm not affiliated with the military. And I was treated that badly Mm -hmm. for coming out. And I had an apology letter as evidence. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how women in the military feel. And what makes it worse at the RMC, if we compare this with civilian university, they pay no tuition, they're being paid, fed, cloth, and have an interesting challenge. In the summertime, they have a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And once they graduate, they get a full-time job for five years, good salary, good future, and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of the most uh, looked-after school that you could possibly have. So you could expect, and you should be expecting more of these cadets and of their leaders. Cadets don't bring them to themselves. They don't leave our towns, village, and hamlets, come to RMC and, and, and be bad to begin with. Mm-hmm. Some Something happened at RMC that transformed themselves into individual who are not only uncouth, but in fact acting contrary to any value system that we have in the rest of Canadian society. So we have to ask the colonels and the generals and others at the military college, you know, how could they have let this happen? Do you think this accountability uh, over the last four years, do you think this accountability has emerged um, in the overall kind of Operation Honor uh, scenario, Julie? 
No, I don't. Um, as Michelle, you know, keeps reiterating, it's so important. There is no oversight. I think we're lucky that we currently have a general that is seeing the light a bit, mm-hmm. who has had some pretty strong language. Which I think I think is important. I mean, it's a very hierarchical organization. So if the guy at the top is using strong language to say this is a problem, we want to eradicate it. I think that's a great start. Mm-hmm. But again, where is the parliamentary oversight, and where is the accountability and the the anger from Canadians? Right. I mean, this is a profession which, again, one in ten women in the military will be sexually assaulted. This is a statistic that should be horrifying us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're looking, we're staring down a federal election. Where's the priority around that? Like, the military is changing in so many ways, in exciting ways as well, right? We're moving more towards intelligence, for example. Mm-hmm. So the idea of, you know, to join the military, you've got to be this jacked guy who's going to be in the trenches. That's yeah. not what the military looks like anymore, right. right? We're looking for smart people who are good at diplomacy, who are interested in IT, who are interested in intelligence issues. So there's, a, there's an opportunity, I think, for us as a nation to sort of steer that ship in a different direction and say the military is changing in lots of exciting ways, which also means that this old school mentality that women should be grateful to be here mm-hmm. is, has got to go. Uh, and that means as Canadians, we're going to hold you accountable. And we're not doing that. But to be fair, we're not looking for perfection. I mean, they're not going to change this overnight. But the reports that we're getting from D&D is kind of a feel-good report. They tell us what they believe is working and working well, making progress. That mm-hmm. may well be. Uh, but they're certainly not at a 100% mark at the moment. They may never be at the 100% mark at the moment. But we as a public, and we're the fathers and you know, and cousins and so on, are these young people who have no protection, they're on their direct command of military leaders, it behooves us and parliament, in fact, to have oversight. And we want to have the oversight give us a report of what is still uh, not working, where there's still progress to be made. Show me in an independent, uh, objective way where we are at at the moment. Is it now safer? Not 30%, 40%. I want 100% safer for a female members of the forces to serve without being subject to any of these um, you know, of this improper and sometimes criminal activities. But some of the punishments that have been pushed out by, uh, you know, military court-martials, like, so I, I looked at some of them and, you know, there's a, a fine, you know, for a sexual touching or, or whatever, a fine, and then, uh, and then the individual goes on and continues to climb in their career. Um, I did a story uh, last year about a commanding officer who uh, did push-ups at the uh, at the party, uh, you know, a mess party with a female on his on his back, or he's doing uh, you know, sit-ups or whatever, and there was no charges. So, is it, uh, Julie? Is it that the military can't come up with a with a, a punishment for for some of this misconduct? Is there a reluctance? I absolutely think there's a reluctance, and I think it's it's bizarre because this is the same place where you can be punished for not wearing your uniform properly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you join the Canadian Armed Forces, every aspect of your life is under military control. You've given that that consent to say that you can decide what underwear I wear, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden we're saying that we can't control people's uh, misconduct, to use that language. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not to absolve the military responsibility, but I think we do have to pull back a bit and look at the broader context culturally, we're in the middle of a massive cultural shift and conversation right now about what adequate punishment should be for behavior, um, ranging from harassment, making people uncomfortable, to rape. I mean, if you look at it in the context of Me Too and everything that's been going on, we're really having this painful but necessary conversation around should we treat harassment the same as we should penetrative assault, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I do think there should be consequences, and I think in the military in particular, it's, it's again, it's 
bizarre to me that you're willing to come down hard on people. I mean, when I was there at RMC, tons of students had been punished recently in that time because they weren't wearing their uniform properly when yeah. they were walking across campus. Right. And then all of a sudden you have students yelling aggressive things at me and sending me hate mail on social media and the military saying, well, we don't know how to punish that. Like, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't buy it. I, I think there's a, a distinction to be made between disciplinary offenses which is the case in somebody not having the right uniform. And I don't have an issue there that the military would use a coded services in the tribunals to, to look after these kind of instances. And crimes against the person, mm-hmm. the criminal code covers that. Crimes against, And it doesn't say crime against military members. It says crime against a person. So if someone is subject and victims of a sexual assault, for instance, society at large has an interest in having the crime prosecuted, and if a trial takes place, it having civil society be informed of it. So it takes place in civil court, downtown, and it's reported upon it, and that it has a deterrent effect, not only upon the military uh, community, but upon the civilian community, and it sends a message also to those victims, particularly if they're, if they're female, that... Uh, accuser or assaulter are not going to get away free. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get away. They may not be getting away free in the military, but you don't know because it's being held, you know, on the base uh, distance and yet very little uh, civil coverage. That's the point. I think the military ought not have jurisdiction to go over this particular crime. When such a crime happens, it should be reported to civil authority, let civil authority investigate and prosecute it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think a lot of people understand or realize that if a civilian woman was raped in Petawawa, for instance, by a member of the military, the decision on on how that's investigated, on how that is punished on how that is uh, that court procedure is is unfolds is made by the military itself precisely military has jurisdiction and it will exercise jurisdiction and even if it's off base and we have case law if it's off base taking place uh, after jury hours if a military member if the assaulters are military members military will more than likely claim jurisdiction and if they do They'll proceed with its investigation and prosecution. And but, ch- but also, I mean, I think it's important to know that you, that they're also selective in some cases, right? If you mm-hmm. look at what happened with, um, you know, Derek Gallagher, a case in Petawawa where a CF, like he was a, a member of the Canadian Armed Forces who sexually assaulted dozens, if not hundreds of women, um, but none of them were deemed to be military women. And so the military said he's not our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um what does that tell you? I mean, he was a Canadian Armed Forces member who was sexually assaulting civilian women in the communities in which he was posted, and D&D tried to wipe their hands of it. Mm-hmm. If you look at the case around, you know, former Colonel Russell Williams, the same thing happened, right? This idea that, like, oh, no, 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 no. So, again, you can't play that game. Mm-hmm. And that's really my my beef in this whole thing is that they're very selective about when they say this person is a part of our team and this person is not, mm-hmm. right? Um, even when I talk about the Russell Williams case, people are very quick to say, he's not a colonel, right? But it's like, right. but that's how right. we know him, right? <laughs> right. But, that, but even then, like, that's very selective. But he was a colonel. So I get that all the time, too. Whenever I write about Colonel Russell Williams, so it's like, oh, he's not a colonel. Well, he was a colonel when he sexually assaulted and murdered women under his command, correct? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So. And that's how he's known, and that's how... And he was a he, he was a, a distinguished, mm-hmm. honored, you know, decorated member of your community, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, 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 he's not part of our crew. And then you look at other cases where they say, oh, yeah, this is our responsibility, we'll deal with it if it's not so severe. And so right. that... We've enabled that 
by doing this thing where it's like you have some jurisdiction, but you don't have all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I agree with uh, Michelle that like it needs to be, we got to decide. Is this and a criminal that's where code violation or not? Was important. I mm-hmm. argued at the time that uh, we should learn lesson from Colonel uh, Williams. They should have been independent body to look at his file, to look at his career. How could he have made it to the top without any sign of any sort, not to blame anybody, but to learn from it? Mm-hmm. How could someone be elevated to the rank of colonel and place in commands of various people? And he probably he didn't become overnight uh, the type of aggressor they did. Uh, he would have he would have shown sign to either his subordinates or associates or or leaders. They didn't. All they saw in him is someone, in fact, of having exceptional capabilities all off, and they promoted him. Should we not learn from it, from the characteristic that he would have been reported on year in, year out by his entire chain of command? Was this something? Is there character traits that we should uh, take uh, take advice from? No. They rapidly went in, burned his uniform, destroyed everything there was about it, mm-hmm. instead of trying, at the very least, of a bad, uh, uh, a bad thing, trying to learn something from it. They haven't. Again, it was a total absence of oversight. Do you think, you know, as we move forward, do you think this issue is going to be properly dealt with, Julie? I mean, do you uh, I, I, are you optimistic? I guess is is the question on whether whether we're going to see some uh, more progress. I'm I'm hopeful, but I think we have to just keep we have to just keep putting the pressure on. We have to keep demanding better. And the military, they are the most on paper, the people who are able to solve this problem the most because they're a hierarchical organization and they they believe philosophically we win as a team, we lose as a team. Mm-hmm. So they should absolutely see these statistics as a reflection of themselves and they should do that work. Um, and they're not. And so clearly there's a disconnect between what the general is saying and what people on the ground believe in this in the Canadian Armed Forces. And that disconnect needs to be addressed. And that disconnect will not be addressed unless we're all pointing the finger and looking closely under a microscope. And we're not. We have these little blips every once in a while where we think this is a problem, don't worry, they're going to figure it out, and then another 10 years goes by, enough is enough. I mean, these people are being paid by us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are paid by taxpayers. And so if we have, these are our, they worked for us. <laughs> and so what are we going to do to hold them accountable? If we have an organization which gets a budget in excess of $20 billion a year and have 65000 in uniform and 25000 in civvies, we we have sufficient professionals uh, in the forces, but more particularly in civil society, be they sociologists, psychologists, or or whatever it is, to form a team together and to investigate and to be able to come up with uh, some type of measures, some type of standards that we can now track what progress is being made and where in fact there's still much work to be done, and we need to have that report be produced for the sake of Canadians and the sake of not only those serving the forces, but those who are contemplating being recruited into the forces. And we want them to be Mm -hmm. serving the forces in in a safe environment and something that uh, respects their their gender, respects their their persona and so on. And we've made progress, but we are a long way away, I think, from saying problem solved. Great. Thanks very much for that. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. We've been talking to Julie Lalonde and Michelle Drapeau about sexual misconduct in the Canadian Forces. I'm Dave Puglesi. You've been listening to Defence Watch. You've been listening to Defence Watch. I'm Dave Puglesi. If you'd like to share your comments or suggestions for future podcasts, email me at dpugliese 
at postmedia.com. If you'd like to see the digital version of Defense Watch, go to the Ottawa Citizens website. Defense Watch has been produced by Post Media. Sound editing by Mina Gamry. Our senior editor is Drake Fenton. Our editor-in-chief is Michelle Richardson. Special thanks to Keith Bennell. Thanks for listening.